Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 6, 2011. Trying to get back in the saddle after our family loss here. We'll see how we do. Got a couple of things we'll do in the first hour and... Probably an aggravating, aggravating, frustrating sermon in the second hour. It'll be a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. Even if I'm not completely 100% myself. We'll see how we do. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said. And uh, as I noted the other day, I, I've kind of gotten back into the swing of Twitter and Facebook statuses and, you know, I've been weaving it into my program preparation and the things I'm doing. Uh, one of the things I find is that sometimes it, it, it helps me to get a radar fix on where things are coming in at. You know, I don't even know if that makes any sense, and I don't even know if I can properly explain it. Just let me just put it this way, is that sometimes um, sometimes I fire off my pirate ship's cannons in such a way that I fire shots across people's bows in order to, uh, you know, to draw them out. And so in, 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 you understand what I'm saying? Maybe I'm not. <sighs> yeah, see, that's the thing. If you're not 100% yourself, you know, just sometimes you you just might sound like you're crazy when you talk. So, yeah, and you're sitting there going, okay, so, Chris, what you're saying is is that you think you uh, actually uh, are the captain of a pirate ship. Mm-hmm, okay, yeah, and that you have a cannon. Mm-hmm, yeah, and um, and that you fire your cannon at, and across people's bows. Right. Mm, maybe it's time for us to call the people with the little white jackets. You know, it, you know it might be. It just it could. <laughs> and it's snowing here. By the way, I'm excited about that. You know, um, last week the uh, we had a we had a thaw. We had a warm spell. We had warm weather come through central Indiana, and uh, we had temperatures in the 50s. And I thought I was going to die. I just. Oh, you know, I had to get the fans out. You know, no, it wasn't that bad. But you know, I was really sad because we had just about a foot of snow on the ground. And uh, it just took two days of 50-degree weather for that just to just clear right up. And it went away and everything turned green again. It's like, oh, man. 
You know, here's the deal. I, I don't like there to be confusion in my seasons, you know, plain and simple. I used to live in Southern California, and we had two seasons. Okay, There are only two seasons in California. You have your hot season, and you have your not-so-hot season. And, uh, you know, it can rain during any particular season, although it generally rains a little bit more during the not-so-hot season. Uh, but for the most part, you know, think, you, know you, get, you get a little bit of cold weather from time to time. And I was, you know, when I was in California for the Christmas holiday, one of the things I thought that was just kind of silly is, is that, you know, here it was 60 degrees outside, 60 degrees overcast and a little drizzly. And uh, uh, when I looked at people who were walking on the streets or at the mall or whatever, they were wearing like the kind of clothes that we wear here in Indiana when it's in the 20s. And I'm thinking, you people are nuts. <laughs> I wanted to break out my suntan lotion and... And, you know, it this, it didn't make sense. I mean, he, 60 degrees and people were bundled up. They were wearing scarves and, and you know, ski caps. And, you know, the, I'm thinking, what is wrong with you people? I mean, <laughs> you don't even know what weather is. And, and you, you're sitting going, now, Chris, it's kind of funny that you would refer to them as those people because weren't you just one of those people just like two years ago? Now, listen, don't confuse me with facts. I mean, I've obviously acclimated and you know just jumped right into the central indiana culture to the point where um you know i'm now a transplanted midwesterner and i've just fully embraced it i mean that's all there is to it i'm just fully embracing uh, american midwestern values and experiences and whatever and so when i go to southern california and i see it's 60 degrees outside and people in southern california are wearing the types of clothes that we bundle up in here when it's 20 degrees outside or below you know, it's just uh, <clears throat> something that I think is important. So anyway, just had to share that with you. Get that off of my chest. You know what I'm saying. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We got a couple of things that we're going to uh, going to tackle here. One of the things that we need to tackle is, uh, you know, is what do you do when somebody accuses you of being a Bible literalist or somebody says to you, that's just your interpretation of the Bible. How do you answer such a person? And so we're going we're gonna to tackle those two kind of quasi little things here. And, uh, and then what I want to do is I want to read a recent po uh, post slash article written by Dr. Albert Muller, a man whom I have the deepest respect for, even though he's a Southern Baptist. I don't understand why he's not a Lutheran, but believe me when I tell you, when he gets to heaven, he will convert to Lutheranism. It's just, it's just what's going to happen. Anyway, uh, he's got... <laughs> Yeah, somebody's going to send me an email and go, how dare you? Yeah, I know. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Albert Muller has a his recent uh, blog post or, you know, at albertmuller.com is entitled, No Buzzing Little Fly, Why the Creation-Evolution Debate is So Important. Okay, I want to pass this along to you because, <sighs> yeah, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's some very good reasons why we need to be paying a cl close attention to this uh, battle and why you need to be educated enough to speak about it, why you need to be able to give a sound, biblical, and at times scientific answer for the reason and the hope that lies within you. Because this, the, the, these biologos guys, um, they are, I mean, they are gunning for bear. Um, they are well-funded, and what they're up to, I mean, literally, What's at stake is the gospel. I, I kid you not. This is exactly what's at stake. This is, yeah, 
If you haven't already heard the call, two arms, two arms, two arms, yeah, the, 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 let me just ring the bell, ding, 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 two arms, yeah, this is time for you to take up your Minuteman post, and if you don't know how to fire a rifle, don't worry, we'll teach you. Yeah, just, you know, grab it, grab it, and let's, grab your Bible, and, uh, <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> anyway, so uh, we're going to be reading that, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time after the first break. Oh, man. <laughs> Y'all know who Rick Joyner is? Uh, Rick Joyner is the uh, Morning Star uh, Ministries guy. He was the, the so-called pastor who helped uh, biblically uh, reinstate uh, Todd Bentley to the pulpit. Yeah, over at Morningstar, yeah, Rick Joyner, his church, they're the ones who've brought us such wonderful things as the Holy Ghost, Hokey Pokey. Yeah, uh, well, apparently he's, uh, uh, well, shown up on a recent edition of Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. And I think Sid Roth thinks that he's... um, that he's the Larry King of soup of the supernatural realm. I think he tries to run his program like he's Larry King, and he runs with the Patricia King folks, the Todd Bentleys, the uh, you know uh, the Joshua Millses, and you know those kind of facts of uh, people. Those uh, yeah, it's just it's a mess. Anyway, apparently Sid Roth appeared on the uh, on this week's edition of. It's supernatural, and we've got prophetic visions regarding the future of America. So you know, I I feel that it's important, you know, to you know to offer you my you know as a public service to to let you in on you know these prophetic dreams and visions, so that you can properly prepare, of course, you know, for the the upcoming you know <clears throat> uh, prophetic visions regarding the future that have been revealed to Rick Joyner. <sighs> You know, why? Which kind of leads to the question: Why on earth should I believe for a moment that uh, Rick Joyner has is really getting true prophetic words from God, the Holy Spirit, uh, when he is, you know, in cahoots with Todd Bentley and his church has brought us the Holy Ghost, hokey pokey? Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that. Rick Joyner is hearing from a spirit, but just not sure if it's, in fact, I'm pretty certain it's not the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because when I compare what's going on in the Word of God to what's going on in his church, there seems to be a, well, to say it's a disconnect would make it sound like, you know, they're they're just a little bit off the mark. Uh, to say that they're not connected in such a way as, you know, kind of like the north rim of the uh, Grand Canyon never really connects with the south rim of the Grand Canyon, that's probably a better metaphor, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so let's dive into the program proper, and uh, you know all of the usual pleasantries apply. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if you're living in the Midwest and it's snowing in your neck of the woods or in the 20s, you know, please, the fuzzy bunny slippers do actually enhance your listener experience, and that is important to me. So kick up your feet, fuzzy bunny slippers. But of course, if you would like to exercise or you can only listen to the program while you're in your car, no problemo. You will not be, you know, we will not take away points from you. If that's your particular listening situation. And of course, if you would like to enjoy an adult beverage, the Bible does allow this as a freedom that Christians can engage in. That being said, it is a freedom to which you must practice it responsibly and never take it to the sin of drunkenness. Just saying, you know, although listening to this program, you are tempted to take it to that extreme you must not, you know, and if you if you have, you need to repent and be forgiven for it because, yeah, that they've taken it too far. 
Anyway, so uh, he, here's the question. I you know that we're gonna we're gonna start off with a couple of just kind of from an apologetics point of view. When you are confronted with somebody who says you are just a Bible literalist, okay? Now, what happens is is that this usually comes up in the context of a conversation that you may be having with somebody who is more, well, let's say liberal in their um, in their hermeneutics, okay? So what happens is is that over and again you hear these types of arguments. You know, there's only a handful of verses that say that homosexuality is a sin, and it's just your interpretation. Uh, it's your interpretation when you say that, and you're just a Bible literalist. Yeah, but kind of the two get mixed together and kind of go hand in hand. In the, they all gets jumbled together in in, in in well when it gets fired back at you. Let me help you kind of how to tease that out and how to, what's a good way of responding. Okay, number one. Okay, let's deal with the Bible literalist claim. Okay, so it's what happens is is that that somehow it's a derogatory term. You're a Bible literalist. You know, this is supposed to be like a conversation-ending proof that you are a Neanderthal type of claim. You are just a Bible literalist. Now, here's the dirty little secret. Okay, when somebody throws that in your face. What they're not telling you is that they at times actually take the Bible literally. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay, when somebody accuses you of being a Bible literalist, ask them, is it okay if I steal your car? And they say, well, no, you can't steal my car. Well, why not? Well, because <laughs> this is generally how they go. Because at this point, they can already tell that there's a problem, that they're feeling the um, they're feeling the ground moving underneath them, and they feel like they're heading towards a precipice, and they are. So, so when you say, you know, would it be okay if I actually stole your car? Now, if they don't have a car, then, you know, pick a different article of clothing or, you know, pick a different article that may be important to them. You know, I want to steal your smartphone, your iPhone, your your laptop. I'm, you know, you know, things like that. Would it be okay if I stole your wife? You know, things like that. You know, just pick something of value to them that they need. I, I you know, I'm just going to go and I'm going to take it. And uh, and you, know, is it okay for me to do that? You, in the if they hem and haw and whatever, and they or if they if they're on the signal, no, you can't steal my car. Well, why not? Why not? Why can't I steal your car? And if they are really, really smart, they will try to avoid the biblical argument because they will know that you've caught them. Okay. The, if, but if they're if they haven't quite connected, you know, two plus two and understand that that equals four, then what will happen is is that they'll say something. Well, because the Bible says, "Thou shalt not steal." Oh, okay. So, in other words, you are taking that passage of scripture literally, right? You're a Bible literalist, but don't you understand? And then what you do is you take their argument and you flip it right back at them. You take their argument and you just pull the carpet right out from under them, use their argument, and just parrot it back so that they see that they're just completely inconsistent. So it goes like this. So you know that there's only a handful of verses in the Bible that say that stealing is a sin, and it's really, really narrow-minded of you. And very literalistic of you to take that passage literally and complain because I want to steal your car. I should have every – in fact, you should affirm me in stealing your car because the Bible says that you're supposed to work with your hands so that you can not only provide for yourself but provide for others. So all I'm doing is taking the things that you should be doing for me anyway. You should be providing for me. 
you, you, you see what's going on here? What you're doing is you're taking their argument and flipping it back at, in such a way that they can see the ridiculousness of their argument. Because even the most ardent of person who claims that you're just a narrow-minded, bigoted, Bible literalist still takes the Bible literally at particular places, which is kind of odd, don't you think? Why do why are they selectively literalistic? Hmm. <clears throat> I mean, you know, if they're going to sit there and say, you know, you're just a Bible literalist, then, you know, point out the fact that they take the Bible literally in some places, especially when it comes to like the thou shalt not steals, even though there's only a handful of those verses. There's only a handful of verses out there that that say that that stealing is a sin and and uh, and you know, and I'm and you could say something in the effect of but I'm educated enough to know not to take those passages literally. You know, I've learned that, you know, through guys like, you know, uh, the, the, you know, John Shelby Spong and, and others that, you know, I, I shouldn't take those passages literally. I mean, that, I, I wouldn't want to be constrained by a literalistic view of that, of those passages. And so, I, I've now been set free to a more enlightened view and a more enlightened understanding of the Bible, so I don't take those passages literally. So y- you need to hand over the keys to your car before I beat you into a pulp and take them from you by force. <laughs> you, you, you may not want to go that way because they might they might press charges, but you understand what I'm saying. That's the, So what happens is the people who are claiming that you're just a Bible literalist are the ones who are in reality just being silly. And the reason why is because they do take the Bible literally at other points. Now, the question then comes up is not what your interpretation of the passage is. The question, okay, because here's the deal. Okay, when it comes to communication, okay, especially in written communication, you have an author, you have a text, and you have somebody who's reading it. Okay, so here's the idea. The question is not what does the recipient believe that the author intended. Although, if the if the person reading the text comes to a different conclusion than what the author intended, there's a problem. There may be miscommunication, vagaries on the part of the of the writer. But ultimately, the question is not what your interpretation or my interpretation is. That's silly. Okay. Uh, and one of the things, one of the problems is that many small group Bible studies have done a terrible job of actually studying the Bible. And one of the questions that is absolutely ridiculous and needs to be gone in the body of Christ is this: is this question? What does this text mean to you? Yeah, that 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 question has got to go. It's a it's a completely out of bounds question. That's not even a remotely good question to ask. The question is, what did the Holy Spirit intend to convey, to send to us as a message when he had particular words penned through the his inspiration by different authors, okay? So it's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of how do we get at what the Holy Spirit intended to convey in a particular text? What did the Holy Spirit say? Let me give you an example that we can all kind of grasp onto. Let's pretend for a second that y'all are parents. Now, I know some of you are kids and you're listening and you're not parents yet, but just work with me for a second because you still understand the metaphor because you are kids and you have parents. Okay, so you're a parent. And uh, you decide that uh, you know you, that you're going to take the you know the morning, a Saturday morning, and you're going to go to do the family grocery shopping. You know, 
part of your quartermaster duties for your family. Okay, so the idea here is, is and what you you got a you got a kid who uh, well, let's just say they're at swim practice for the morning, and so they're they're not going to be there when you leave. It's a teenage kid, and so what you do is you write a note to your child, dear child. <clears throat> You're writing a note, okay, and you say in the note, I love you. You're the greatest. Today I'm going to be shopping. I'll be home at 1 o'clock. Sorry I wasn't here when you came home from swim practice. But um, there's a few things I would like you to do before I get home. Number one, I would like you to take out the trash. Number two, I would like you to wash the dishes and put the dishes in the dishwasher. Number three, I would like you to mow the lawn. Love mom or love dad. Okay, so there you go. So what happens is, is you have an author, you have a text, and you have a recipient. Now... For the sake of this particular conversation, let's pretend for a moment that that you don't just have one child, but you have two, okay? And the, the child that the note was not intended for, let's just say that they have a tendency to be just a smidge snotty to their sibling, okay? Just, just work with me. It's a metaphor. It's a story I'm telling. So here's the idea. is So the kid comes home from swim practice, okay? And the kid says... You know, I read the note that, that mom or dad wrote, and I've decided that mom really didn't mean it when uh, she said, or dad didn't mean it when he said, take out the trash, mow the lawn, and do the dishes. That that, that was really, I don't want to interpret this, this note literalistically, that actually, that if I look at this for a higher spiritual meaning, what they were really conveying, what mom and dad were really conveying to me is that they want me to kick my feet up and finish the morning by watching uh, Saturday morning cartoons on television, okay? Now, so what happens is the other sibling says, nuh-uh-uh, read the note. Mom and dad, or dad clearly said they want you to mow the lawn, they want you to do the dishes, and they want you, you, you understand what I'm saying? And so what happens is you got this little conflict. So the kid who the note was addressed to says, nope, that's just your interpretation, I have a different interpretation of the note than you have. So therefore, we can't ever really decide what was intended by this particular text. So I'm just going to go with my interpretation and you can go with your interpretation. But don't you dare try to straightjacket me into a literalistic interpretation of this text. I have learned via postmodernity that, uh, that you know, that it, it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as what the author intended. There's only what the recipient experiences while in conversation with the text. And and so that interpretation, you know, my interpretation is my interpretation. Your interpretation is your interpretation. Okay, and so you know that's just the way it is now. So what happens is is that you know the other child is just fuming, going, "This is ridiculous." Mom and Dad clearly told you you have chores to do, and you're going to sit in front of the television and just disobey them. Don't you understand that when Mom and Dad come home, you're you're toast, you're dead. Just stop bothering me. Mom and Dad are loving; they are kind and merciful. Don't you see in the note? It's said in the note that Mom loves me. And the dad loves me. And see, and they think I'm just the greatest. So I'm just going to go with that. Okay. I don't, you know, I just, you know, listen, I refuse to be bound by a literalistic interpretation of this particular note. So uh, the uh, <clears throat> the so-called spat between the two siblings ends and one o'clock rolls around and mom or dad comes home from their quartermaster duties, you know, with groceries in hand and walks in the door and says, 
hey, would you help me out with the groceries? And then looks at the sink and goes, whoa, why are there dishes in the sink? And holy guacamole, look at that. The The lawn isn't mowed. And oh my goodness, you haven't done any of the things that I've listed on my note for you to do. To which the child to whom the text was written to says, mom, listen, you know, I understand that you wrote the note, but the most important thing is, is how I interpret it. I didn't want to be bound by a literalistic interpretation of your particular commands regarding, you know, what you said in this case. And so, you know, I, I interpreted, you know, the fact that you said that you love me to basically mean that you really wanted me to do whatever it is that I want to do and that you would affirm me, lovingly affirm me and however I interpreted your note. To which the other sibling comes down and says, Mom, I tried to talk to him. I tried to tell him that you told him that he was about to do you know, kind of the informer kind of thing. And, uh, and to which the mom would basically say, you should have listened to your brother or sister. I specifically told you in this text X, Y, or Z. This is what I intended to convey because you can tell because that's what I said in the text. You're interp- you don't have the freedom to interpret it differently than what I intended to communicate. You see what I'm saying? So the problem here, when we approach the Bible, it's not a question of interpretation. The question is, what did the author intend to communicate? You can divine that, you can figure that out via grammar verbs, nouns, and the genre of the text and the the historical context of a text. It's also known as the historical grammatical method. But to somehow take passages that clearly say particular things are sin and just say, oh, I'm not going to be bound by a literalistic interpretation, that's just tomfoolery. And then to turn back around and accuse somebody and say, you know what, you're just interpreting it literally, and I, you're such a Bible literalist. Yeah, well, the problem is, is that they're hypocritical because certain passages of Scripture, they sure do take literally. You don't believe me? Try stealing their car. Anyway, I just wanted to put that out there for you. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. The man 
management of Monty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge, and 40 healed doing the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You can Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. Thank you, Lord, for new knees in Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple of we- about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore uh, up until today. And when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, those who claim that you're a Bible literalist are actually Bible literalists themselves. They just take certain passages literally and others not. The problem is, is that they flip the things that should be. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, uh, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box. 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let's move along here. From the uh, albertmuller.com website, headline reads, No buzzing little fly, why the creation evolution debate is so important. Oh, man, I couldn't agree with this more. Albert Muller writes, the folks at Biologos ended the year in 2010 by declaring, quote, the dawning of a new day. Daryl Falk, president of the Biologos Foundation, wrote with both passion and anticipation as he reviewed the past year and the impact of Biologos on the evangelical scene. If making a splash was their ambition, they certainly achieved it. And yet Dr. Falk seemed clearly frustrated that the task undertaken by Biologos is so daunting. Apparently they've got a big task. I've got to get everybody, all the Christians, embracing evolution. He reports that Biologos has barely begun to deal with the issues in a substantive manner. Furthermore, he explains the task of convincing evangelical Christians to accept the theory of evolution represents no small challenge. Why is the task so difficult, he wonders. He suggests three reasons for this difficulty. First, he argues that the church pays far too much attention to a scientific enterprise that isn't, in his view, scientific. He points specifically to the work of the intelligent design movement. Dr. Falk represents the position of Biologos, insists that the evolutionary scientific enterprise is the authoritative world of true science. Quote, for hundreds of years now, science has been successfully informing us about the natural world, he insists. Of course, throughout the centuries, many scientific certainties have been embarrassingly overthrown. Those who oppose evolution are, quote, taking the church down a dead-end road, he asserts. Then, after 
chiding the church for paying too much attention to anti-evolutionary voices. He offers a sentence which, taken seriously, represents a breathtakingly intellectual commitment. Quote, Scientific knowledge is not deeply flawed, and we cannot allow ourselves to be led down this pathway any longer. That is nothing less than a manifesto for scientism. Science, as a form of knowledge, is here granted a status that can only be described as infallible. The dangers of this proposal are not only intensified when we recognize that scientific knowledge is not even a stable intellectual construct. Nevertheless, these words do reveal why Biologos pushes its agenda with such intensity. Secondly, Dr. Falk explains that the difficulty of, connect, of, con, of conducting serious disagreements among Christians is in itself a limiting factor. Quote, Can we stay Christians even when we disagree so sharply about all sorts of things, he asks? Well, the good news for Dr. Falk is that the church has long experience with serious theological disagreements. The bad news is, is that many of these disagreements have turned ugly. In one sense, some degree of risk is involved simply because the stakes are potentially so high. The controversy between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century was not a calm debate followed by refreshments in the church basement. Both sides recognized that nothing less than the most basic understandings of the gospel, scripture, and ecclesiology were at stake. In our current context, I would suggest Dr. Falk to suggest to Dr. Falk that he and his colleagues should make their arguments with clarity, submit them with charity, and expect the same in response. We will all be judged by both the spirit and the substance of our communications and arguments. At the same time, we do not serve the cause of Christ by denying the importance and implications of our disagreements. Dr. Falk and his colleagues at Biologos believe and take them at as sincere in their belief that those of us who oppose evolutionary science are doing the church a great disservice, leading the church into an intellectual disaster and robbing Christianity of intellectual credibility among scientists. Those are significant concerns, and they cannot be asserted as if this is an all, if this is an all, and having a hard time with this sentence here. It's all right. It happens from time to time. Those are significant concerns, and they cannot be asserted as if this is an all, see, there it is. I get stuck on it again. If this is all an intellectual tea party. (laughs) In return, those of us who oppose the Biologos agenda of embracing evolution do so because we are concerned that their approach means nothing less than the church's capitulation to scientism and the embrace of fatal subversion of both biblical authority and the integrity of Christian theology. We, too, are animated by central and not peripheral concerns. My goal is to write and communicate nothing that will, by by any intemperate spirit, cause me to be embarrassed before the watching world or to bring shame upon the gospel. Thirdly, Dr. Falk suggests that, for some of us, the theological challenges are enormous. There can be no doubt that he is absolutely correct when he writes that theological, theological issues associated with the evolutionary creation uh, debate seem so huge that that to so many evangelicals. He then asks, quote, Will we ever be able to show the followers of Albert Muller, John MacArthur, and other Christian and others that Christian theology doesn't stand or fall on how we understand Genesis 1 or the question of whether Adam and Eve were sole genetic progenitors of the human race? 
These are extremely critical issues to many, and the task of showing in a convincing manner that evangelical theology doesn't depend on the age of the earth, and it doesn't depend on whether Adam was made directly from dust, will likely take decades before it will be convincing to all. So, Dr. Falk sees the task as that of convincing us that evangelical theology doesn't depend upon affirmations about the age of the earth or the historicity of Adam as made directly from dust. But Falk envisions this task as lasting decades before it will be convincing to all. With all due respect, I think the will uh, I think he will need a longer calendar. Most frustratingly, Dr. Falk's statement does not acknowledge the fact that arguments published by Biologos go far beyond even these most important concerns. Articles at Biologos go so far as to suggest that the Apostle Paul was simply wrong to believe that Adam was a historical person. A recent Biologos essay argues that Adam and Eve were likely a couple of Neolithic farmers in the Near East to whom God revealed himself in a special way. There is a consistent denial of any possibility that Adam and Eve are the genetic parents of the entire human race. The Biologos approach also denies the historical nature of the fall with all of its cosmic consequences. Biologos has pub- published specific explicit calls to deny the inerrancy of the Bible. The concerns do not stop here. The Bible reveals Adam to be an historical human being, the first human being and the father of all humanity. Adam is included in biblical genealogies, including the genealogy of Jesus. If the arguments argued are offered thus far by Biologos for resolving the theological challenges associated with evolutionary creation are any indication of what is likely to come in the future, Dr. Falk and his colleagues will wait a very long time indeed for evangelicals to join their club. The article mentions me at several turns, suggesting that I attempted to squash Biologos, not with a swat, but with a few delicately placed strokes on his keyboard. Dr. Falk responded, Biologos is not a little fly, however, and it will not go away. Consistent with his assertion, Dr. Falk wrote, quote, We live in a scientific age, and that is not going to change. As for me, I am said to represent a view that takes on the entire scientific enterprise. He then writes, To this day, I have not been able to identify a single person who holds a science faculty position in any biology, geology, or physics department at any secular research university in the world who would agree with Dr. Mueller's view of creation. Well, ouch, at this point, I'm supposed to yield to the authority of science and relinquish my theological concerns and be quiet. I am willing to accept the authority of science on any number of issues. I am fundamentally agnostic about a host of other scientific concerns, but not where the fundamental truth of the gospel and the clear teaching of the Bible are at stake. As I have repeatedly stated, I accept without hesitation the fact that the world indeed looks old. Armed with naturalistic assumptions, I would almost assuredly come to the same conclusions as Biologos and the evolutionary establishment, or I would at least find evolutionary arguments credible. But the most basic issue and and has always been that of worldview and basic presuppositions. The entire intellectual enterprise of evolution is based on naturalistic 
assumptions, and I do not share those presuppositions. The entire intellectual enterprise of evolution is based on naturalistic assumptions, and I do not share those presuppositions. Indeed, the entire enterprise of Christianity is based on supernaturalistic rather than merely naturalistic assumption. There is absolutely no reason that a Christian theologian should accept the uniformitarian assumptions of evolution. In fact, given a plain reading of Scripture, there is every reason that Christians should reject a uniformitarian presupposition. The Bible itself offers a very different understanding of natural phenomenon. The explanations that we should be compelling uh, compelling to believers. In sum, there is every reason for Christians to view the appearance of the cosmos as graphic evidence of the ravages of sin and the catastrophic nature of God's judgment upon sin. Dr. Falk ends his essay with a paragraph that includes this key sentence, quote, if God really has created through an evolutionary mechanism, and if God chooses to use Biologos and other groups to help the church come to grips with this issue, then three huge challenges will begin to melt away as God's Spirit enables us to look to Him and not to ourselves. I will simply let that sentence speak for itself. I do not believe that Biologos is a buzzing little fly. To the contrary, I believe that it represents a very significant challenge to the integrity of the Christian theology and the Church's understanding of everything, and from the authority and truthfulness of the Bible to the meaning of the Gospel. A buzzing little fly is only a nuisance. The theory of evolution is, is no mere nuisance. It represents one of the greatest challenges to the Christian faith and faithfulness in our times. Amen, Dr. Muller. I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, if you would like to arm yourself with scientific reasons why you should not buy into evolution, visit piratechristianradio.com and click on the store link at the top of the page. And in that link, you will find a section in our bookstore called Contra Evolution. Start picking out some titles and start boning up. It's time for you to understand scientifically why evolution doesn't even remotely work, because this is going to be a big fight. It already, already, already is. All right, moving along here. It's time to deal with cataclysmic prophecies of the future. Sorry, I just was being gratuitous there. Um, from the latest episode of It's Supernatural, here's Sid Roth. My guest, Rick Joyner a proven prophet, has just received the most serious, the most alarming, and the most specific and graphic prophetic dream about the future of America. No! Next, on this edition of It's Supernatural. Now, already we got a problem. we got to ask the question, is Rick Joyner a true prophet or a false prophet? Well, I would make the claim that anybody who would put together something as silly or have his church do something as silly as the Holy Ghost hokey pokey, we could probably say right off the bat, mm, is probably a false prophet. Can ancient secrets of the supernatural be rediscovered? I don't know. Can they? 
Do angels exist? Yes. Is there life after death? Duh, yeah. Are healing miracles real? Well, they can be. Can you get supernatural help from another dimension? Yeah. Has the future been written in advance? You mean is God sovereign? Yeah, yeah, the God of open theism, yeah, yeah, he's kind of pathetic. You know, I tweeted out the other day that, you know, the God of open theism, it's kind of sad. He doesn't even know who's going to win the Colts-Jets game on Saturday. By the way, <clears throat> go Colts. Uh, but don't you think that's kind of sad and pathetic that he, the God of open theism really doesn't even know who's going to win? Sid Roth has spent 30 years researching the strange world of the supernatural. Join Sid on this edition of It's Supernatural. Okay. Hello, Sid Roth here. Welcome to my world where it's naturally supernatural. Love the play on words, dude. Well, I was calling my friend Rick Joyner on the telephone. He's you mean Rick Joyner, the guy who reinstated, you know, um, Todd Bentley to ministry. Said, Sid, I just have had a dream that has shook me. It's I have had a dream, a dream within a dream. Maybe it was just bad pizza. You know, it's possible. One of the most vivid dreams, significant dreams I've ever had in my life. And as I know, he's had a number of significant dreams. As a matter of fact, Rick. How do you know he wasn't on one of those sleep aids that causes you to have really vivid dreams? You've had a number of significant words that have. What is it, Ambien? Yeah. How do you know this wasn't Ambien inspired? Come to pass. And the measurement of whether someone can dream a dream that's from God or have a prophetic word that's from God is, does it come to pass? Yeah. Uh, tell us a few things that you've seen. in the Yeah, no, no, that's actually only part of it. Yeah, read the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, because God even says that he, he, to test his people from time to time, he would send prophets whose, well, dreams and visions would come to pass. In that case, you have to ask yourself, are, is, what they te is what that prophet teaching in accord with what God has revealed about himself? Are they teaching sound biblical doctrine? Yeah, so it's not just does that prophet or you know dream come to pass. It's is the prophet actually teaching what God's word says? Past that have happened. Well, in 1987, I saw that the the countries under behind the Iron Curtain, the communist bloc, that they would that liberty was going to break out, freedom was going to come, and and of course, you know, a couple of years later, the wall came down, and uh, a part of that same revelation was as they experienced increasing liberty, we would experience decreasing liberty and the attack on our liberties. Hmm. I think that's certainly come to pass. And I saw things back there in this extensive vision I had that lasted over two and a half days. Uh, I saw things that, uh, I, you know, it was hard for me to believe would ever come to pass. One of the things that's now unfolding, I saw military action along our southern border with Mexico. I saw pitched battles. And when you saw it, you thought, that could never happen. Uh, you think about 1987, this, no way this is ever going to happen. And uh, we're there now. I, I, but that, that whole vision, I think, was a panorama and is now given... Me, a timeline. I just got a quick question. Is the United States at war with Mexico? I was not aware that we were. Pitched battles with the Mexicans, huh? You know, kind of sad if the number one superpower in the world can't beat a, the Mexican army. For some things. But now, now the um, housing crisis that's going on today, who would have thought when, I mean, you could lose money in real estate. <laughs> Everything was going up, up, up. What did God show you about that? Well, we started... 
prophesying two years before that this was there was going to be a collapse. There was going to be a shaking. That- you know what's so funny is I remember reading op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal that were talking about the housing bubble two years before the. <clears throat> Maybe they did it prophetically. That, uh, that you know the bubble was going to burst. We lost a lot of friends when we started speaking that, as you can imagine. But but of course it came true, and Lord, those who heard and got their lives in order profited from that situation and. You know, I was for a long time just about the only one, I think, that was out saying Y2K is not going to be anything. Uh, that was I, not a popular message at that time. <laughs> Everyone wanted Y2K to be a collapse. All right. I mean, look at his track record. Oh, he must be a true prophet. I mean, they really didn't want it, but they were sure it was going to happen. It's amazing how many friends we lost over that one. But I, I had been seeking the Lord. I said, Lord, why are you showing everybody else stuff about Y2K and you're not showing me one thing about it? And, and he spoke to me one day. He said, I'm not showing you anything because it's not going to be anything. Uh, churches were having all of these meetings. <laughs> Actually, I felt yeah. the same way as you. And, and a top pastor from Chicago called and said, I'm having a panel on how to prepare for Y2K. And I, would you want to be on the panel? I said, sure, but you have to understand, I don't think there's going to be a Y2K, and he didn't invite me. Yeah. Uh, but you were recently at Moravian Falls, and I've been there, and I love that place. And I, I, I have to believe the reason Moravian Falls, North Carolina, has such an open heaven is because of the Moravians. Tell me just a little bit about them. Well, the Moravians were the true father of modern missions. You know, Count Zinzendorf, even when William Carey was called the, tr- the father of modern missions, he said, no, Zinzendorf was. He was his inspiration. And he was a German count who, at the time, must have been one of the wealthiest people in the world. And, uh, you know, he had such a vision and a heart for the Lord. And he had a revelation of missions. And, and this is extraordinary the way he received all of this. But uh, they were so touched by the call of the gospel, especially to the poor. And uh, that they, you know, the very first two missionaries they sent out. Now, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm just I have not really boned up on my Count Zinzendorf and Moravian um, history. What little I know makes me go, <laughs> this is probably not a good thing. I wonder if Pastor Charmley could give us a quick history lesson on uh, whether or not there's some problemos with uh, Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Actually sold themselves as slaves to pay their own passage to go to the West Indies to reach the slaves in the West Indies. Can you you imagine selling yourself as a slave for the gospel. You know, it's really funny. When I ca- type in Count Zinzendorf false prophet in Google, I come up with 21,800 results. Apparently, there's a few people out there who think there's problems with Count Zinzendorf. Oh. It actually sounds more biblical than some of the presentations I see today. Yeah. But they prayed up in the region called Moravian Falls. And I have so many friends that live out in that area, and they keep telling me they see angels. It's a total open heaven there. And that's where you had your dream. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, uh, please share. It is a place. It's where we say we come to Charlotte or you know, heritage to meet with people, but Moravian Falls is where we meet with God. And I hardly ever go there without some extraordinary revelation or visitation. And 
and I had a dream. How significant? I want you to tell me how significant, based on all of your experience over the years, how significant is this dream? It shook me personally more than any dream, any revelation I have ever had that I remember. It, it imparted something so deeply to my soul, the reality of this, the absolute emergency that we are in as a nation, and it was about our country. I have never been shaken this hard before. And, and, and you know, in the last few years, I've been trying to sound the alarm because it's the main message the Lord's been giving me. But I've never had it any go this deep or to grip me with just how critical things are like this dream did. Yeah, so, okay, now, we gotta, now here's the question. Is Rick Joyner a true prophet or a false prophet? I would hold up the Holy Ghost hokey pokey and the reinstatement of Todd Bentley to um, ministry as two uh, severe hits against his credibility. And so should you. So should you. I mean, there's all kinds of nuttiness going on at Morningstar to the point where, you know, I don't care if he's swallowed the Holy Ghost feathers and all. Notice the Luther quote. Um, you should probably shouldn't believe him. You know, and you know, so, but those are talking this. Oh, this this shook me to the bones. This that means it's true. No, it doesn't mean it's true. And even if his vision quote comes to pass, that doesn't mean you should listen to Rick Joyner because this guy teaches some whacked out, bad, biblically contradicted so called theology. We continue. Is it too late for America's survival? You're going to get some amazing insight from this visitation that Rick had through a dream. Don't go away. Uh-oh, the U.S. might be at stake. Don't. <laughs> All right, we'll keep listening. We'll be right back. Hello, I said Roth here with Rick Joyner. And Rick said he had a dream from God that he classifies an emergency for the United States. So this is a dream from God. Okay. Uh, Rick was in Mor- Moravian Falls where there's an open heaven, and he had a visitation. Tell me... Just the, the very fact that he was in Moravian Falls means that it has to be God who spoke to him. It's briefly about the dream, and more important, what it means. Well, it was a brief dream, and in this dream, I was in a log cabin. And every room in this log cabin was a part of America. Now, all this has prophetic symbolism, but I was taken to the different geographical parts as well as different like different cultures and industries and places in America and these little fires kept popping up and the people leading me around would just go over and stomp them out and then like not paying any attention to them and it, it started really bothering me about these little fires and finally we were going to go outside and outside was a military base in the stream but as we we're going out another fire just a little one shot up over and I went to stomp it out and I when I got there and stomped it out I realized that it burned through the floor and the subfloor so I just looked down under the house to see the foundation and I and you know things happen in a dream that are not in that action but I could see the whole foundation and the whole thing was on fire it's just hot burning coals and this is where the little fires were popping up from and I knew but, but if you destroy the foundation, you destroy the whole house. That's what's on fire, the foundations. Hmm. 
And uh, I immediately, you know, a fireman, if you ever saw. So there you go. You heard it here at Fighting for the Faith. Apparently, God, the Holy Spirit is speaking to Rick Joyner, the man who helped restore Todd Bentley to ministry, who uh, whose church is responsible for the Holy Ghost hokey pokey that the the foundations of uh, the United States are on fire. It, it does not bode well for the United States. Something like you run for your life. That's and that's what I felt in the dream. And in the dream, I wanted to go just five sure. steps over to the side and grab my computer, which is where I, everything I own is in my computer almost. So I was going to grab that. And I heard the voice of the Lord in my dream. He said, you don't have time for that. Get your wife and get the fire hose. And I knew what he meant. And I woke up at that time. And, and I was, I mean, I was sweating. I was... I knew this house was about to explode that was America. So it really is an emergency. It really is an emergency. And usually in dreams and visions, your wife or bride is is the church, the bride. And I know she alone has the hose, the fire hose, the water, which represents the word of God and the truth. The only thing we can do is pour as much water as we can on the foundations. Well, while while the foundation is being destroyed, we don't have anyone speaking a non-compromised message of truth to speak of. I mean, there are exceptions, but to speak of. And you think Rick Joyner is giving us a non-compromised message of truth? Oh, good gravy. Uh, What we have gone is to more of a seeker-sensitive than a, I hate to say it, but it's true, God-sensitive message. Well, we're in desperate need of... Seriously, I'm supposed to listen to Sid Roth complain about seeker sensitivity. Oh, man. Leaders in our country that are not politicians, but leaders. And there can be a huge difference. And we're in desperate need of, of those who will speak the truth boldly without compromise and they're going to be far more concerned about what God thinks than what men think. You know, the, the fear of man brings a snare. We can't worry about what man is going to... I tell you, the political correctness is killing us. It's being used against us. Well, for instance, General Jerry Boykin, I've heard him speak at your place. Um, tell me his credentials briefly. Well, he's probably one of our greatest warriors over the last 30 years. He was one of the founding members of Delta Force. He commanded Delta Force. He's the guy Noriega surrendered to in Panama. He was over the Delta Force, you know, Panama and at Mogadishu in the uh, the battle that was made famous in the Black Hawk Down movie. Uh, General Boykin was over that, and he's been... He's a know, former Green Beret. He was Green Beret and then Delta Force, which was special operations... But how and does then, he know so much about Marxism and socialism? Well, Jerry went on to oversee covert operations at CIA for three years. He was our deputy secretary of defense for intelligence for after that. And he he was trained as a Green Beret. And when he was coming up in these things, the, the greatest threat. Can I point something out here? Um, even Glenn Beck, the Mormon, has been saying that the America's heading for a cataclysm. We're heading for a cliff. Yeah, it just makes you wonder if he's really hearing the voice of God or if he's just reading the op-ed pieces lately or watching Glenn Beck's program. Oh, man, this is driving me nuts. I'm just about done here. To America was socialism. 
and they were trained to identify and recognize the encroachment or the insurgency of Marxism at the time. And that's when we got Jerry, you know, I, I got him to do this little video. Oh, I'll tell you what, I want you to see just a small, small segment of this video. It is, he's not a people pleaser, that you'll find out. We hear a lot about Marxism and socialism, and there are those, particularly in the media, who would say that uh, we should tone down our rhetoric about uh, socialism because we're not moving to socialism. Well, the reality is I'm a special forces officer. I'm a Green Beret, and I've studied Marxist insurgency. It was part of my training. And the things that I know that have have been done in every Marxist insurgency are being done in America today. All right, that's it. We're done. This is ridiculous. Okay, so apparently Rick Joyner has had a vision from God, and the stuff that he's now saying, God is saying, he's now brought in a former Green Beret military guy to warn us about the evils of socialism and Marxism, which, by the way, yes, I completely agree. Socialism and Marxism have been on the rise in the United States of America, and it is a deadly, serious threat that needs to be addressed. But again, I, you know, how does this? I mean, apparently, this is a direct word from God. Um, ugh, I can get this from from Glenn Beck or just from reading regular op-ed pieces. Uh, it just feels to me like um, Vic Joyner is jumping on, you know, the fear and the concerns that people are, the valid fears and concerns that people are having regarding the direction of the United States and tap this into some apparent vision that he's had from God. And, well, wouldn't you know it, the foundations of the of the American uh, Republic are on fire. Duh. I don't need a special revelation from God to tell me that uh, we've got some major issues that have got to be addressed or we are heading for, well, a cliff. But, oh, man. Sorry. It just, you know, this is just silly. All right. We are up on our second break when we come back. A, a, a sermon that has more to do with recovery and 12-step type therapy stuff. Uh, than the Word of God. Yeah, I wish I was making that up. But it's that time of the year, so seeker-sensitive guys, you know, you got to jump on the, uh, you know, the beginning of the year resolution kind of stuff. So, I mean, this is a great time for you to kick those bad habits. And if you've been looking for, you know, a sermon to, you know, help jumpstart you at overcoming your bad habits, yeah, then you, <clears throat> you won't be disappointed, but you won't like my commentary. So uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Lovely. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. 
of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. As we switch gears from Christmas sermons. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. That, yeah, but it doesn't get any better though. To the New Year's type sermons that you hear at seeker-driven churches, it doesn't. Well, you'll have to wait and see. Let's cue up the music. Let's do this right. The uh, ugly, yeah. <clears throat> we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today is ser- ser- um, self-help pep talk. Uh, comes to us via Gateway Church in Austin, Texas. John Burke presiding. Now I want you to listen carefully to this and ask yourself this question. Am I hearing basically, um, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, a Christianized, baptized in something kind of sort of that lips and sounds like, well, God's wordish, um, recovery sermon, or am I hearing about sin and grace, law and gospel? repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for our sins? Or am I instead really just hearing, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous type stuff with a, with a thin biblical coating wrapped around it? And is this appropriate for 
a pastor to be preaching in church? You know, I'm asking these questions ahead of time because, well, hopefully we can find the answers to these questions as we um, slog through this, it's not a sermon, self-help pep talk. The name of it, by the way, is Momentum Admit. That's The sermon series is entitled Momentum. The sermon itself is entitled Admit. So without any further ado, let's kill the music. Here is John Burke of uh, <clears throat> Gateway Church, Austin, Texas, uh, that's giving something you know here at the beginning of the year that sounds well it like you could probably get this just by going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Here we go. You know, one of my earliest memories was around a New Year's resolution. It was, uh, it was a little after New Year's when my dad came and had a talk with me. Um, I had just turned four years old, but I already had a chronic bad habit. It's true. I still sucked the pacifier. I I didn't do it in public. It was kind of a hidden thing. It was like a a nighttime ritual for me, but it embarrassed my dad terribly that his son was still a closet sucker. (laughs) And so he came to me and, and he said, son, it's time to quit. You know, most normal kids, they've quit years ago. It's time to quit. Now, What I lacked in emotional security at age four, I made up for in shrewdness. So I said, okay, dad, I got a deal for you. You quit smoking and I'll quit the pacifier. (laughs) See, I knew my dad had many times tried to quit smoking. So he just stood there staring at me. I mean, okay, now already we're off on the wrong foot. The reason why we're off on the wrong foot is because this apparently is not a sermon based upon a biblical text. The job of a pastor, according to Scripture, is to preach the Word. So we've got a problem. We are off in, well, we're, we're, we're starting in the exact wrong place. Okay, this, notice uh, we're, not, we're not asked to open our Bibles, turn to a particular text, maybe, um, you know, like, you know, maybe a gospel text. You know, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Yeah, John, chapter 8. Stand as we read from the Gospel of, of uh, John, and, uh, and uh, we'll begin at verse 1 and begin at, at, and end at verse 50-something. You, you understand what I'm saying? We're not, this isn't based on a, a text. We're not hearing the story of the Word. No, no, we're well. We're hearing a story. This is for sure. We're hearing a story, but the story that's being told is John Burke's story. Yeah, that's a problem. Now, I, listen. I completely get that sometimes when you're giving a, an illustration to help somebody better understand a biblical text, that it's at times perfectly appropriate for you to tell a story from your own life. But see, the story from your own life should be used to help illustrate what a text is saying so that people can better understand the story of Scripture, not the story of your life. Here we've got it 180 degrees backwards. We're hearing John Burke's story, but um, I don't see this as being used to flesh out uh, what the biblical story is being said. Instead, what I'm afraid is, is that the biblical story is somehow going to be used to flesh out John Burke's story. Yeah, the Bible doesn't illustrate your life. 
if you're if a pastor uses an illustration from his life, it ought to be used to illustrate what the biblical text is saying, not in reverse. You understand what I'm saying? Let's continue. What do you do? Your four-year-old lay down the gauntlet, right? So my dad and I walk out into the the um, the black night air, and and I take my pacifier and I throw it out into the darkness and he takes his cigarettes out of his pocket and threw it out into the darkness and we shook hands and we walked back inside and my mom said she was the proudest woman in the whole world that night and as she tells a story um she later went to the grocery store and came back about two hours later and and was looking around for us and called you know john john we're both named john couldn't find either one of us and then she saw it two lights out in the backyard, father and son down on our hands and our knees, crawling through the bushes with two flashlights. Not a good start for how to break a habit. So this year, I'm going to break it, darn it. No, I did actually quit that year. My father, however, didn't quit for 12 more years. He didn't quit until the doctor said he had terminal cancer. Now, here's the reality. We all get stuck. We all get stuck. And many times we go year after year vowing, this year I'm going to make a change. This year I'm going to get free. This year I'm going to become that better me that I know I was meant to, to become. And we often start well, but about February we start to lose momentum, don't we? And so this year we're going to do it together. We're going to do something different. And if you will stick with us For the next seven weeks, we're going to walk through a process together that's going to help us actually break free, actually begin to live in a new kind of freedom. So I ask you to think about that one stuck area that you're going to work on. Maybe it's getting out of debt finally. Maybe it's unhealthy relationships. You just can't seem to quit. Maybe it's some addiction. You know, to alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or tobacco, whatever it might be. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe binging and purging. Maybe it's just anxiety and worry. You're just a chronic worrier. And you're, you're ready to be done with it finally. Or maybe you're just grumpy and unloving all the time. And you need to deal with that. Or maybe you just keep saying yes to bad dates. Or watching too much glee. You know, whatever it is. Whatever it is, I want you to think of what's that one thing. And we're going to work on it together. Today, we're going to talk about what is it that keeps us stuck year after year. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. The the question is, what is it that keeps us stuck? The biblical answer is, well, you're still, um, even if you're a Christian, you still struggle with and wrestle against your sinful nature. Read Romans 7. The Apostle Paul writes Romans 7 as a Christian in the present tense. Many people seem to think that just because you're a Christian, that somehow that means that, well, yeah, you don't have a sinful nature anymore. Oh, contraire. When you understand that in the Greek, uh, Paul wrote Romans 7 in the present tense, writing as a Christian, then you understand that we as Christians continue to wrestle with our sinful nature until Christ either returns in glory or until the day in which our sinful nature joins Adam in death. 
Yeah, it's just one of those things. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, so that's the reason why. And so the question then is, is that can you somehow control your sinful nature apart from the Holy Spirit? Remember, it's the sanctifying work of the Spirit that continues to bear fruit in our life in keeping with repentance. And so um, yeah, the problem is, is that it's all going to be imperfect this side of uh, Christ's return. So, yeah, I just, you know, but again, where's the Bible at this point? Yeah, it's not here yet. Mm-hmm. And I need to ask one more question. Uh, can I get this uh, this sermon so far? Could I get this from a, uh, well, from Dr. Phil or Oprah? So far, um, there's nothing distinctively Christian in this sermon. I could get what I'm hearing from Dr. Phil or from Oprah so that's kind of a problem, don't you think, coming from a Christian pulpit? Yeah, I think that's a problem. And, you know, oftentimes it's this very simple thing is that we just won't admit it. We just won't admit that we're stuck. You know, that's why our motto around here is no perfect people allowed. You know, because we've realized that humans have this this innate ability to try to deny what is wrong. To ref- yeah, no, 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 no. It's not that human beings just have an ability to deny things. That's not our problem. Our problem is, is that all of us by nature are sinful. We all have a sinful nature, the flesh that we wrestle against. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not just a problem of just denial. No, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, that's just to completely gloss over the real problem. The real problem is is that we are by nature sinful and unclean. That by nature we don't do the things we ought to do. And and you know, Christians, baptized believers continue to wrestle with their flesh. Again, read Romans 7, you know, just refuse to admit when something's wrong. To keep saying, "No, no, I can fix it in my own sheer willpower," but we never do. We never do. And what's amazing about this is how obvious it is to us when we see it in other people, right? I mean, you've seen this, right? You, you've seen it in maybe your relatives or close friends, and, and it drives you crazy. Now, I remember a, a friend of mine, Rick, told me about getting to know um, his neighbors across the street. And they were this incredibly successful uh, couple, you know, both had great careers, nice cars, nice home, beautiful three-year-old daughter. It's like the American dream. And then one day the neighbor comes over to Rick's and says, and, and hands him his three-year-old daughter and says, please take her. I'll be back. And then leaves. <laughs> comes back in like two or three hours later with this just, you know, ashen look on his face and says, she left me. My wife left me. I have no idea what what just happened. And so for the next few weeks, my friend Rick provided a a listening ear as his neighbor would ping pong back and forth between talking about how completely unprepared he was and how he can't believe this happened and then how much it was all her fault. (laughs) And back and forth he would go. Now, I don't want to judge the guy, but just from what my friend Rick said, it's kind of amazing because... His neighbor couldn't... Yeah, don't tell us you don't want to judge the guy because you're judging the guy. Seriously. This is double talk. No, no, you are judging the guy. You are making a judgment about him. The Bible doesn't tell us not to judge. It tells us to make a right judgment. At least that's what Jesus taught us. Not fathom how in the world this could happen, but it was his third marriage that had gone down the toilet. Okay? 
And, and, and it couldn't possibly be anything of his fault. It had to be her fault. And you know, two weeks later, Rick saw on his refrigerator a singles club magnet. <laughs> you know, a magnet for a singles club. In other words, if at first you can't succeed, try, 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 try again. That's insanity. But friends, this is exactly where we get stuck many times is that we just try again, try again the same old way, but it doesn't work. Now, what happens to get us stuck is we, we will blame. We'll say, oh, it's all these bad women I keep marrying <laughs> or it's the job or it's, it's my parents or it's my boss or it's my circumstances. Confession, all right? I've done this. All right, I, I, I've gone from one circumstance to another to another, and, and somehow my problem showed up again and again. And you know what I finally realized? Everywhere I go, I'm always there. <laughs> See, the, the problem somehow stayed with me wherever I went. And here's what we've got to realize, friends, is that the, the common denominator of all of your bad circumstances is always you. It's always me. Now, this might be fine recovery from addiction type of advice. And yes, you're right. I'm the common denominator in all of my problems. Tis true, tis true. Um, but is this what a pastor's called to preach? Just general truth, general self-help recovery truth? Or to preach the gospel, to preach the word, to preach Christ and him crucified for our sins? And notice the way he's handling sin at this point. You know, it's it's like he's tr- it's like he's purposely trying to shave the hard edges off of the topic so that he doesn't offend anybody. I find that to be offensive though, don't you? And mine. Now, this is actually good news if we will face that and admit it. It's good news because you can't always change your circumstances. And you really can't change other people, but you can change. And everything can change because of that. So when we see people who are, who are stuck, but they won't admit it, how, how does that affect us? Think about it. Think about some of those people that you've, you've known they've been stuck, but they just, you know, their pride gets in the way. They won't. They're just stuck. No, they're sinners. They won't admit it. And, and, and they just, they blame. No, they won't confess it. What does is, what is John write in his epistle? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that the cleansing from all unrighteousness is not apart from Christ and him crucified. Never is that apart from Christ and him crucified in the New Testament. It just doesn't make any sense. It's always in light of God's mercies, in light of the cross, that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness, even in the Old Testament too, by the way. (sighs) You know, this is just a general self-help, well, recovery, 12-step type of thing that I'm hearing. I could get this at Alcoholics Anonymous. I can get this at at, uh, well, any recovery group. But, I, you know, see, the problem is, is that this isn't what a pastor is supposed to be preaching. Blame others or they blame their circumstances. And it, it angers us, doesn't it? And, and we get kind of disgusted and contemptuous toward them because they won't just admit their problems and grow up. 
But have we ever considered maybe others see the same thing in me? Maybe that same tendency is in me. Maybe I have stuck places that I'm not seeing. In fact, maybe that's why I get so disgusted when I see it in others. Because they actually might reflect something back to me that I have to face that I don't want to, so I push them away. This, I think, is actually the real human problem. Is that the truth is we all get stuck, but none of us really want to admit it. Now, I'm convinced that until we admit it, we will stay stuck. So let's just face something up front today. If most humans are good at avoiding the real issue, maybe we are too. In fact, you know, this, this propensity uh, is, is so common that there is actually a river named after it, denial. I know, it's a bad recovery joke. But, but listen, this is what you got to hear. When you're... Did you hear that? It's a bad recovery joke. Now, you know, maybe I'm just too tightly wound, but we're already nine minutes into this sermon. We are roughly about a third of the way through. I have yet to hear a single reference to God's word. And what I'm hearing, again, I could hear this from Dr. Phil. I could hear it from Dr. Laura, who is Jewish. I could hear this from Oprah, who is a heretic. You know, it's, I could hear this from just about anybody. What's missing? Well, let's see, God's word, Christ and him crucified, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and apply the 12 steps so that you can, you know, overcome and conquer your addictions. Sin or your stuck behavior or your character defect or whatever it is, when it's making life unmanageable for you or for others around you, but you can't admit that there's a problem and that you're powerless to change it, that's called denial. And this is a propensity that humans have, all of us. We have this ability to ignore a problem or to cast blame or to pretend like I could fix it on my own if I wanted to or to minimize it and say, well, it's not that bad, even though everyone else sees it and wants it to change. Now, that's why Jeremiah says this, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6, you can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. Okay, stop. First instance of God's word a third of the way through the sermon. This is a problem. This is not acceptable. This is absolutely subpar preaching and is not biblical preaching. Okay, he didn't give us a verse. So apparently somewhere in Jeremiah 6, it says this thing that he said that it said. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's flip on over to Jeremiah. Uh, Let's see, Jeremiah 6. All right, yeah, let's type this into my copy of Accordance, which is the program I prefer on my uh, Macintosh. Still haven't made the switch over to Logos, although they keep getting better. I got to tell you that, just, you know, you folks over at Accordance, keep that in mind. And by the way, the uh, Accordance uh, application for the iPhone yeah, it's not as good as the Lagos application for the iPhone. Just want to say that. And if those of you listening from Accordance and Lagos want to tell you this, um, I would like the ability to highlight on my yeah to highlight passages on my iPhone. Just want to let you know I am disgusted by the fact that I can't highlight and annotate things. When yeah, <clears throat> sorry, I'm off on a tangent. <laughs> I do that often. Anyway, Jeremiah chapter 6, if you have your Bible, flip on over. I will be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, otherwise known as the English Sanctified Version for me. 
And so let's take a look and see if Jeremiah's chapter 6 is all about not living in denial, you know, that river in Egypt, and it's all about recovery and self-help and, you know, the 12 steps and all that kind of jazz. Here's what Jeremiah writes, beginning at verse 1. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal on Beth Hakarem. For disaster looms out of the north and the great destruction. The lovely and the delicately bred, I will destroy the daughter of Zion. Mm. Notice God's wrath here. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pastor each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us for the day declines, for the shadows of the evening lengthen. Arise and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm, I'm so far I'm not seeing anything about self-help and recovery steps here in Jeremiah chapter 6. Makes me wonder if he's actually, prob- if he's really biblically teaching here. Let me continue verse 7. Now as, as a well keeps its water fresh, Fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence and destruction are heard within her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel like a grape gatherer pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. <clears throat> do you do you feel that... Um, John here, Pastor John, is correctly preaching from Jeremiah chapter 6 so that we understand what God revealed there. Let me go back to that little phrase. Behold, this is verse 10, Jeremiah 6 verse 10, halfway through. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Now, listen, there's a couple of ways to scorn the word of the Lord. One way is to just outright attack it and deny it, deconstruct it, and constantly impugn it, deny it, and find ways of working around it so that you don't have to listen to what it actually says. That's one way to do it. Now, there's a more subtle way in which people scorn the word of the Lord, and it's done tacitly. Tacit basically means without saying it. And tacitly basically means that, well, rather than attacking God's word and all that kind of stuff, well, we're just going to be a little more subtle. And the way we're going to do that is, well, we're just not going to teach it. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to find a way to make it look like we're using God's word, but we're really not. Yeah, see, that's 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 kind of a, a, a silent way of scorning God's word. And my question comes up is, is it possible that John Burke here is um, scorning God's word by not preaching it correctly, not telling us what it actually says. It's possible, I'm just saying. So let me come back, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn, and they take no 
pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. I have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Where Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Now listen, notice... Here we've got law and gospel in the exact same chapter of Jeremiah chapter 6. Here we've got God speaking forth his wrath and threats of punishment because of their transgressions of the law, because they deal falsely with each other, because they say peace, peace when there is no peace, because they're an idolatrous and an abomination nation. And God here speaks his wrath and now comes the word of the gospel, comfort and the offer of the forgiveness of sins repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So Jeremiah 16, things turn a little bit. Let's watch how this turn. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people and the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they've rejected it. Why? What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me, nor your sacrifices are they pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbors and friends shall perish." Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has overtaken has taken hold of us, pain of a woman in labor. Go not into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. They are stubbornly rebellious, going after, going about with slanders, 
They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly and bellows blow fiercely and lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called for the Lord has rejected them. Now, I've just read all of Jeremiah chapter 6. Do So I ask the question now. Do you think Jeremiah chapter 6, any of the verses in there, have anything whatsoever to do with, you know, trying harder and overcoming, um, you know, addiction or self-help or recovery or anything of that nature? When you read it in context and you let the story preach, you let the story be told, it tells a different story than what John here has used it for. So I'm going to back this up just a smidge, maybe about 30 seconds, and let you hear John use that verse from Jeremiah and just ask yourself, is he really telling you what that verse really means? That's called denial. And this is a propensity that humans have, all of us. We have this ability to ignore a problem or to cast blame or to pretend like I could fix it on my own if I wanted to. Or to minimize it and say, well, it's not that bad. Even though everyone else sees it and wants it to change. Now, that's why Jeremiah says this, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6, you can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. Isn't that great? See, <laughs> yeah, I don't think you understand what Jeremiah was getting at in that passage at all. When I went back and read the whole thing, it seems like when you read Jeremiah chapter 6 in context, he's saying one thing. And, uh, well, John, it makes it sound like you're trying to make him say something he didn't say. Denial just keeps us stuck. It keeps the wound festering. It keeps the problem persisting. A workaholic dad kept coming home, his briefcase full of work every night, and uh, his son kept asking him, Dad, will you play with me? And night after night, you know, the answer was, I can't tonight, I'm too busy, son. And again and again, night after night and year after year. And finally, the kid one day says, Dad, what is in that big briefcase that you bring home every night? And the dad said, well, son, it's my work. And and the kid said, well, you know, why do you have to bring it home every night? And he said, well, because I can't finish it at the office. And the kid said, well, Dad, can't they just put you in a slower class? <laughs> it's a good question. But see, when, when things like this cause us to face the painful reality of our patterns, denial kicks in. And denial says, it's just a season, son. As soon as I'm done with this project or this deal, then we'll play. But that season never ends, does it? Or denial compares and, and says to itself, well, at least I'm not as bad as her or him, Right? Or, or it blames others. It, it says it's his fault, it's her fault, it's the boss's fault, or whatever it is. But it keeps us stuck. You know, Keith Miller wrote an excellent book called Hunger for Healing, sold millions of copies. Uh, a lot of what you'll hear in the series actually was influenced by Keith. Keith has become a, a good friend, and he's actually here at Gateway and has influenced a lot of people here. What Keith does in his book, which I would, I would highly recommend, um, it's called Hunger for Healing, like I said, but it, it looks at the biblical underpinnings of, of the recovery movement. And what Keith explains is that in any pattern that we're stuck in, any sin pattern, any character defect, any bad habit, any stuck place, the first step 
is that we have to admit we've got a problem. And we've got to admit we're powerless to change it on our own. Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a discernmaholic. See, because if you could, you would have already, right? So we're stuck. And if we're going to get any momentum this year toward lasting freedom, we've got to face down this, this denial tendency. You can't actually get help if you don't think you need it. Now, the scriptures call this, this pride that keeps us stuck, they call it spiritual blindness. You know, and by the way, religious people, people who have been religious a long time, they can be the worst at being stuck, terribly stuck. That's why Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day. In fact, in, in John chapter 9, it says this. Jesus said, I've come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were listening, they, they knew what he was talking about. And they asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See what he's doing? He's going after this, this pride. This pride that, that claims it can see. I know exactly what's going on with me. But in reality is blind to the places where I'm, I'm stuck and need God's help, not willing to admit it. Now, the truth is every single one of us needs help. You know, we, we all have places where God wants to grow us up into more of the people that he intended to be, but we just get stuck. And so we have to start by admitting that we need help here. So let's... Uh, man, this notice that this entire thing falls within the general themes and genre of recovery 12-step program type thinking. We've got a problem here. Let's start there. What is it in your life that, that you can't seem to change on your own power? You know, think about that thing. What is that yeah, thing what, that... What's the thing I just can't seem to change on my own power? Let me think about it. Yeah, all of the sins that I commit every, yeah, and, uh, well, the, the whole dealing with my sinful flesh problem. Read Romans 7, you know. So the whole thing, all of the sins I commit, because, you know, there's no point in compartmentalizing, don't you think? That is destroying the life that you know God has for you, that, that life that is better, that life that allows you to really experience a depth of love. And, you know, to really find peace in, in the moments of life, to really have uh, an exhilarating kind of joy, even though the circumstances around you don't change. What keeps haunting you, whether big or small, can you start by just admitting it? Now, by going home today and writing it down and admit it to yourself and admit it to God. That is the, the, the beginning of movement forward. Admitting to ourselves and to God, and as we'll see, to, to one other person, to one other human being. And the reason we have to do this is it breaks denial. It breaks this tendency that we, that we all have. And it allows us actually to start making progress toward freedom. It gets us unstuck. Now, if we're going to admit, we have to realize why it's so hard for us to simply admit that we have a problem or, or that we're... This is just driving me nuts. Powerless to change it on our own. And what I find is that there are three fears that, that keep us stuck, that keep us from wanting to, to admit. And I want to talk about each of them. And the first is this, the fear of losing control. 
See, we don't want to admit that we have a problem or that we, we don't have the power to change it because something in our past has convinced us I've got to stay in control perfectly. Now, here's how this actually happens. Um, like my friend Keith likes to say, uh, in reality, there's, there's really only one sin. There's one big-ass sin, as in capital S, sin, okay? <laughs> but you won't forget it now, will you? Okay, so the one big-ass, capital S, sin that actually causes all the little S sins, like adultery and cheating and lying and stealing. Okay, now we're dealing with sin. This is a good turn. The one sin that we, the reason why we all sin is because by nature we have rebelled against God. It comes back down to the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. Let's see where he goes. And trying to control other people. All those little lessons, they're just symptoms of the one big sin. You know, Jesus said the, the first and greatest commandment is to love God. Well, the good one sin is that. We dethrone God. Yes, and we do this by nature. We, we suddenly... So is the solution that, oh, well, <laughs> whoops, I'm sorry. I just got to admit. Hi, I'm Chris, and I'm a dethroner. You see, then that's the first step towards, you know, putting God back on the throne. <sighs> suddenly do the opposite. We fire the rightful CEO and manager of our lives, and we take control of the operation ourselves. This is what we tend to do. And I believe this is the root of all our other problems. We put ourselves at the center of our lives or we try to put something or someone at the center of our lives in the place where really only God should be. No, all of us do this by nature. We're born doing this. Read Ephesians. I'll tell you what, let me read Ephesians 2 to you since, you know, that kind of comes into play here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yeah, that's, that's not uh, very politically correct, but it, it, it takes a stronger view of sin than what this guy is saying. But, yeah, see, your problem is, is that you, you dethroned God. And, you know, well, well, we all do this in little ways. And what we need to do is admit that that's what we're doing so that then we can move along to the next step so that we can rethrone him. Or if you have um, uh, Romans chapter 3, I'll start at verse 9. Well, what then? Are, are we any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, they're under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The vent, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> Let's continue. Now, it's interesting, you know, the founders of the recovery movement understood this. They said it this way. The founders of the recovery movement, are they apostles? Are the founders of the recovery movement part of the 12 that Jesus picked? You're just asking. Selfishness or self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. And to get well first, 
we had to quit playing God. See that? We had to quit playing God. Now, you know, most people know the Ten Commandments, or at least, at least we know of them. Honestly, most people don't know what they say. But the first one is all about not loving God. It's all what, it's, it's exactly what the founders of the recovery movement realized. God says this, don't worship other gods besides me. In other words, don't play God. Don't pretend that, that you or anything or anyone else can be at the center of your life where only your creator was meant to be. Now, the truth is we all have the propensity to nudge God out. We don't often admit that we've done that, but it's what we do. We, we basically take control and we want my will done on earth and in heaven, please. And if it's not, we get angry. Okay, this is turning a little bit better, okay. At others and at God, right? It's subtle, but, but we do it. Now, here's the irony of this. Here's what happens. Once we fire God as the rightful CEO of our lives, we still need assurance that our lives are, are of worth, that we have meaning and purpose and value, and that, that we're still lovable. And so now that I've taken control of the operations, I've got to prove that, that things can work my own way. And, and so what we do is from a very early age, we all do this, from a very young age, you and I set our sights. Yeah, how young, like from the moment you're conceived. On figuring out how we can do or be whatever will get others to show that we are lovable or that we're valuable. Because after all, if, if God's not going to give it to us, we got to find it somewhere else. And that sets up this, this desire to try to control everything or everyone to ensure our success in this operation. That we are of value and of worth in this world. Now, like I said, even if you have given your, your, your life to Christ, you know, maybe many years ago, there is still this sin propensity that Paul talks about that, that is within us. Sin propensity. Well, I mean, that's true. It's kind of putting it mildly, don't you think? That keeps trying to, to play God and to take control, you know, to, to prove that, that we really are in control of everything. You know, Isaiah puts it this way. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. We want it our way. We want to run the universe our way. And then when we, when we do, then we must stay in control, which means that we must hide all evidence that we're not in control. We must hide all evidence that we're weak or we lack control. You see? See where I'm going with this? But the problem is, it's only a matter of time until the evidence starts to show and things start to unravel. And they start to become unmanageable. We're trying to run the world, but we don't know the future. We're trying to get life to go our way and people to do our will, but they don't obey. <laughs> Right? Invariably. And, and then when, the, when, when things aren't going our way, we start to get irritable and it produces irritation and blame and restlessness and anger and fear and shame. But instead of calling out for help, instead of letting go of this, trying to control everything, we redouble our efforts. And then we start to feel the pain and the anxiety and the hurt and stress and worry and fear of failure. So we medicate. We hide. We cover it up by drinking or drugging or having more sex, or overeating, or throwing up, or watching more TV, anything to ease the pain, anything to feel pseudo-alive, even if just for a second. See, there is a better way, though, friends, 
There really is a better way. And that is the way of true spiritual freedom. And that's what God wants to lead us into. But for many of us, the underlying issue is... Uh, God, yeah, God wants to lead us into freedom, but that freedom is not apart from Christ and him crucified for our sins. That freedom is not achieved by you just merely admitting you have a problem. Control. And until we can let go of trying to control everything, we won't be able to admit it. We won't be able to seek help. We won't get free. Now, let's get honest, okay? Just for a minute, and then you can go back to pretending, okay? So just for a minute, let's get honest about this whole control thing. How in control are you and I really anyway? Right? Let's, let's do a little self-assessment, okay? You just do a little mental check if you are perfectly in control in this area, right? You can control your moods, right? How do you do with this? So think about it. You're, you're never anxious, never frustrated, never sullen or mopey, right? Never deal with PMS. Oh, I'm going to hear about that, aren't I? <laughs> Men never deal with rage or emotionally shutting down. You always feel exactly the way you want to feel. Is that you? No? What's wrong? You're in control of your emotions, aren't you? How about this one? You're at peace with everyone. Every relationship is completely kosher. In fact, your old boyfriends and girlfriends still brag about what an unselfish, loving person you always were. Is that you? No? How about this one? You have no fears. Business bus, no worries. Recession, layoffs hit you, yawn. That you? Armageddon starts. What's for dinner? You have no fears because you're perfectly in control of the future, right? No? All right, how about this one? You need no forgiveness. You've never made a mistake. Why would you need forgiveness? You're per- pure as a driven snow, right? White as wool. Never said a hurtful thing. You know, never gossiped about anyone. Never used anyone for your own benefit. Never cheated. Never lied. Never lied about cheating. Is that you? All right, so let's take assessment. So you're supposed to be in control, but you can't control your moods. You got several shaky relationships. Fears often stalk you, and you're plagued with imperfections. Do you really want to cling to this delusion that you're perfectly in control? Again, I should just ugh, sin is being watered down here. It sounds like it's being handled so upfront, but it's not. Yes. The answer is yes. We really want to cling to this. Why? Why? Because it just hurts us. We can let it go. You know, I remember um, when I graduated from the University of Texas, took my first job. It was out in California. And I only had two days to drive out there. And my sister drove. Here we go. Another story about him. Can we get into the biblical text and actually hear what God's word says in context? Why don't you tell that story? drove with me and we're driving you know across the country and somewhere around tucson i accidentally took a wrong turn and started heading north now you're supposed to head west if you're going to california right but i didn't realize i was heading north until after a couple of hours i started noticing a slight incline to our driving i thought that's strange i didn't think you go up when you go to california you know the signs were showing but hey i'm in control i know what i'm doing so i kept going because after all we were in a hurry (laughs) So I keep driving and up, up, up we go until uh, an hour or so later, I I started to realize the signs were showing that something's wrong. 
And so I told my sister um, that, you know, I think that we may be lost. And like any level-headed female, she said, why don't we stop and ask? Well, that's a stupid idea. Why would I want to stop and ask and just, you know, cause more pain if I had made this wrong turn? So I thought, no, I'll fix it myself. So we pulled over and I looked at the map and I figured out, yes, in fact, we had gone about two hours north. But guess what? There was a shortcut back. I wouldn't have to retrace my steps. I wouldn't have to admit utter failure. We could take another route. Well, my little shortcut took us about five hours out of the way on a detour through the most winding mountain roads I've ever been in in my life. And here's the reality is that our our prideful attempts to cover our mistakes and to show that we're still in control, it always costs us more in the end. It always costs us more. The truth is we're not in control of much at all in reality. And it's like punishing ourselves. You know, when when we... What about God's punishment of our sins? You know, the wrath of God, that was there in spades in Jeremiah 6 when I read it in context. Why do I feel like this just completely misses the point? Aren't willing to just admit it and ask for help, especially from the one who knows the roads, from the one who's in control. So we've got to let go of that fear of losing control if we really want to grow, if we really want momentum toward freedom. All right, another reason that we don't admit our junk often is because we're afraid of being abandoned. <sighs> Again, I could get this all from Dr. Phil or Oprah. It's just driving me nuts now. I'm about to lose it. We're afraid that, that if people see our weakness or we admit our deficiency, they'll leave us. Now, we don't often admit this, but but it's the reason that we hide behind masks, that we pretend with people that we're a little bit better than we really are. Because deep inside, we think, if you really knew me, you'd abandon me. You'd leave. Now, the irony of this is that people usually see right through our masks anyway. Right? Think about it. You see right through the masks of others who are doing this, don't you? And, and, And most of us can see. The reality is we're mostly only fooling ourselves. And the other side of the coin is we need each other to grow. See, we need each other in each other's lives so that we have the support and encouragement to face down places we get stuck and and grow. You know, in World War II, uh, the soldiers were trained for battle by beating it into their heads, don't leave the wounded. We don't leave the wounded. And I mean, they pounded that into their heads. And so when they were out in the middle of of battle, despite the the dangers, bullets flying overhead, if someone took a hit, if someone went down, they would be willing to take enormous risks to bring the wounded back. Now, the reason they pounded this into the soldier's head is because every soldier realized on another day, it could be me. On another day, it could be me. And knowing that we don't leave our wounded, strengthen the whole platoon. See, because then knowing that, the whole platoon was willing to to take calculated risks and and to not shrink back in fear and and to know that if I go down or you go down, we're going to stick by each other. We're going to get you back. Now, the reality is 
That's the way God wants his church community to function. Oftentimes it doesn't because of our fears, but it's what he wants us to be for one another. That's why it says in Romans 15, 1 and 7, it says, those who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. In other words, we need to be people who won't leave our wounded either. You know, how How about Christ? I mean, hello? Ah, I'm going crazy. Do you think Christ left his wounded behind? I mean, wasn't he wounded for our transgressions? Can we talk about the wounds of Christ, please? I'm just... Yeah, the first thing isn't the first thing here. It's how did Christ? How does Christ accept us once we get our act together? No, no. It says that when we were still broken, messed up, sinful people, dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. There it is, the gospel. Yeah, you know, I one of the things I've noticed in college football when uh, when the home team makes a touchdown or scores, you know, usually the crowd sings or the band plays a tune or a ditty. So we we should do that, you know. See, I heard the gospel. Yeah, it only took you twenty eight minutes to get there. That's God's grace. That's how he accepts us, as is to walk with us, to help us become who he intended us to be. Oh, man, he just fumbled. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. We, <clears throat> You know, in the NFL, you know, sometimes they have to do the instant replay and, you know, determine whether or not there was really a touchdown. Yeah, upon further review, I'm sorry, the ball did not actually break the plane of the uh, of the end zone. Yeah, let me let me do an instant replay for you so you can kind of see why. Here we go. I'm backing up the uh, the audio so cuz it sounds like we're hearing the gospel but I was premature. You know, when upon further review, no, the ball did not actually break the plane. Here we go. Here's why. People, Christ died for us. There's, That's God's grace. Yes. That's how he accepts us as is to walk with us to help us become who he intended us to be. And that- Kind of mixing, he's mixing sanctification and justification. As a result of that mixing, there's a foul on the play. Yeah, see, unfortunately, we've got to take it back to the uh, the line of scrimmage, and they've got to replay the the do the re, the play it all over again. Sorry, yeah, no, it's it's third down, third down and thirty to go. <sighs> That's how he wants us to treat one another, to be willing to accept each other, even with our stuck places, even with our wounds, even with our sins and our struggles, and then to walk with each other so that we won't fear being abandoned and we won't... I'm just psychologically creeped out by this uh, sermon. By the way, Christ doesn't accept us as we are. He died for us as we were to propitiate the wrath of God because of how we are and or were. You understand what I'm saying? If Christ accepts us just the way that we are, then why did he die on the cross? Yeah, this is, and, and even in his explanation of the gospel, he's mixing justification and sanctification in such a way that you're not clearly hearing the gospel. Ah! Abandon each other. Then we can be real with each other. Then we can really grow. Oh, then we can be real. Wow, that's great. 
And you know, that's why here at Gateway, that's why we encourage everyone to get connected into a small group, a group of, you know, eight to 15 people meeting in homes to create this kind of environment and grow together spiritually. That's why we encourage even in small groups to find, you know, one or two others like a triad or three of you who will be like spiritual running partners who will run through this life together and be totally honest with each other because that's what we need to really grow. So at Gateway, we don't leave the wounded behind. We're going to be people who walk with each other even through the wounds. Let me ask you, do you have people like that in your life right now? People that you will accept. Do you have people like that? I don't need people like that. I need a savior. Hello? (gasps) Except, you know, even though they're wounded, that you won't leave them behind and they will do the same for you. Because it's that support that we need to admit where we're stuck, to admit where we feel powerless, but to move forward toward freedom. One last reason that I think we tend to deny, uh, admit where we're stuck or to, ad- to admit our powerlessness is that we fear loss. Now, here's how this works. See, when we, when we fire God and kind of nudge God out of the control of our lives, when we take control uh, ourselves, um, it's, it's only a matter of time until things really start to unravel and become unmanageable. But then what we do is we find ways to cope. And maybe we cope by using sex to feel loved. Or maybe we cope by using drugs to feel alive. Or smoking to feel at peace. Or binging and purging to feel in control. Or using porn to get a buzz. Or gossiping to feel like we belong. Or Or twisting God's word to feel like you're really teaching the truth. Included. Or spending to feel special. Or hoarding to feel safe. I mean, I could go on and on. You get the idea. Now, here's the problem. These things don't work. Oh, sure, they work for a second. They feel good for a minute or two, maybe a day, but they don't actually get us what we want. They don't actually get us safety or love or control or peace or life. But- okay, I come back to here. We, we are just about done with this sermon. We are, I mean, seriously, we're minutes away. Minutes, mere minutes, less than five away from the end of the sermon. Have you at this point, at any point in this sermon, clearly heard God's word being taught in context and in an expository kind of way so that you can correctly understand the doctrines and teachings of the scripture? what God has clearly revealed in his word in context. Which book of the Bible are you now more familiar with and now correctly can handle and properly understand what God has revealed in it? Which major section of Scripture can you point to and say, now I firmly grasp what God has revealed in that book or that chapter? Any any coming to my I Personally, I... Maybe I'm just obtuse, but I'm just not, um, yes, I, I really haven't learned anything about God's word from the sermon at all, except for the part that I cleaned up from Jeremiah chapter 6, where I took the time to actually read the whole chapter. Is this what God has called his pastors to do? Is this the kind of preaching that God has called his pastors to do? When the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write, Preach the word in season and out of season. 
For a time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. When God the Holy Spirit says, preach the word, is this what he had in mind? What you're hearing John Burke give here in this sermon from Gateway Church in Austin, Texas. Are you hearing God's word? Is John preaching God's word? May I be so bold as to say, not on your life. This is a recovery psychology self-help sermon with a couple of out-of-context verses and so-called biblical concepts slash principles thrown in to make it appear that you're actually learning the Bible, but you haven't. You haven't learned the Bible from John Burke. He hasn't preached the word. This is a problem. But to admit we have a problem is to face losing these coping mechanisms. And and here's what's crazy about it is even though these things may be killing us, even though they may be destroying the best things of life, there's something they give us that we're afraid to lose. Because sometimes it's the, it's the most life we've ever felt, though it's just a little drop in the ocean that God wants to give us, see? And so what we have to do is let go of this fear of what we have to do, what we have to do. Why don't you tell me what Christ has done for me and really, really, you know, make a point of fleshing that out of, of loss. And we have to trust that there really is more to life and that God really has something better. You know, I remember starting to realize this on, on my own. And, you know, I, I've shared some of the story with, with many of you before. But early on, I started to see these, these, this recurring evidence of um, workaholism and over-accomplishing. Oh, man, I just, oh, th- I'm telling you, these are the types of sermons that just creep me out on a deep level. I am like... Quit this. Knock off this psychology nonsense. This is not what you're called to preach, Pastor. I remember when I first got married, uh, Kathy, my wife and I would, she would want to just lay on the couch on Sunday. Here we go, preaching about himself. Notice, he's preached about himself far more than he's preached about Christ. We did kind of hear that Christ died for us, and that's supposedly grace, but then he fumbled the ball by mixing sanctification and justification. But I kid you not, John Burke has preached about himself far, 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 far more. If you know, if I were to actually sit down and actually, you know, create an Excel spreadsheet and then, you know, sit there and say percentage of time John Burke preached about himself as one column and, you know, made a graph of that and, you know, made it into a pie chart. OK, and then preached about Christ. Based upon, you know, the, the, the ratio at this point, if it were a pie chart, it would pretty much be, you know, all of the pie would be him preaching about himself. And there would be this ever so tiny microscopic sliver that you would have to literally pull out a magnifying glass in order to properly see it where he preached about Christ. Don't you think that's a problem? I do days and I would lay down with her just to relax and after about two or three minutes I started getting anxious I couldn't do it (laughs) you know it just it bothered me it was like I got to do something I got to be productive 
right? Which didn't go over very well with her if I said that. But there was something in me that couldn't just be and feel okay about myself. But at that point, I wasn't willing to admit it because I didn't really see a problem. And it worked for me. And this is the other thing. See, it worked for me. Because all of my accomplishment got me lots of recognition and lots of praise. And even though it wasn't true peace and love like I really wanted, it was the next best thing. Okay? And it was only as I started to to see that it was costing me a greater depth of relationship that I was willing to, to let go of the fear of what I was losing. It happened actually when my daughter was three years old. I wanted to be a good father. That was one of the main things I wanted to be. But, you know, at the time I was redlining with a job and I kept getting promoted. I was working on two master's degrees. I was, I was, I did, I did. John, quit preaching about yourself. That's not your job. I had many other projects and I always had to be accomplishing. And one day uh, she wanted me to play with her and I'm sitting down on the floor and I'm playing Barbies with her. And with one hand, I'm moving the Barbie and with the other, I'm holding my place open in the book I was studying. And my daughter, three years old, looks at me and said, Daddy, you're not playing right. She was right. I wasn't playing right. And it was that moment I realized something's wrong. And I've got to admit it. And then I was ready to take that first step. To admit it to myself, you know, that I can keep going this way, but it's going to cost me something more. So I need to be willing to let go of even the fear of loss. And I told myself, I told God, and I also told two close friends who pushed me. And they'd ask me hard questions like, all right, so you you need time to be a good father. What are you going to quit? I couldn't even imagine quitting anything. See, because it got me something. But once I faced the fear of losing what that got me, I got something better. And that's what you'll find too, friends, is that if you're willing to face down these fears and let go and trust, you're going to find something much better. Trust in whom for what? And that's what we're going to walk through together over the next seven weeks. So stick with us, come back each week and do the work. Law, law, law. I mean, notice the gospel sprinkle in here was completely convoluted, too. You're going to find a new freedom. Here's your assignment for this week. Oh, I can't wait for the homework on this. Admit. Write it down. Where is it that I'm stuck? Where is it that I feel powerless to change? Yeah, you know, uh, John, would you be willing to admit that uh, you're stuck, you know, in your sin of not actually obeying God? regarding what your task is as a pastor to preach the word, and that apparently you need to, you know, admit it, you know, so that you can take some steps here to get unstuck, because you are really, really, really stuck. Tell yourself, tell God, and find one person that you're going to trust and tell as well. You know, if, uh, John, if you want to uh, contact me, uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, I'll be happy to be your accountability partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll be happy on a weekly basis to review your sermons and point out when you're not doing your job. Because that's the beginning of moment. Well, there you go. That's the end of the sermon. As far as the audio was concerned, we didn't even get the sappy music. I, I feel ripped off. <sighs> yeah, that's 
Yeah, unfortunately, this is a, another genre of uh, preaching that we get from these seeker-driven guys and the mega churches during this time of the year. And this is not biblical preaching. Like, it, this is the farthest thing from it. I could get this from Alcoholics Anonymous or some self-help recovery group or whatever. And, well, we had some Bible verses thrown in for good measure. But we didn't really hear God's word. We didn't hear Christ and him crucified for our sins and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. Yeah, the cross was sadly, sadly, sadly missing. And all of this is you, well, you've just got to admit. Yeah, get get to admitting. Yeah, because that's the first step in recovery. But see, that's really not quite the first step the way it's laid out in Scripture regarding salvation and true freedom from sin, death, and the devil. That comes from confessing, confessing, and then being forgiven, repenting and being forgiven. And all of that is given to us by the work of God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of law and gospel, sin and grace, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and him crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. All of that missing, gone, a wall, sadly not there. Why? Because, well, John Burke thought in all of his spiritual wisdom that he's smarter than God, knows better than God what he's supposed to be preaching from the pulpit. And rather than doing what he's told, preach the word, he decided to do something different. And as a result of it, the thing that got lost, Christ and what he's done for us. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins, sins, yeah, he died on the, his blood covers your sins. That's what we're supposed to be preaching, you know, repentance, forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> we'll see you tomorrow. Good night. Good night.